And now, happening live, we'd like to welcome our viewers from around the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room for November the 9th, 2016. My name is Anonymous. No, my name is not. It is Wes Fryer, and I am coming to you from Oklahoma City tonight. And we are going to be talking about the surveillance state. So I have I have donned my glasses and my I'm blogging this shirt. I asked my daughter what I should wear, and she said something that she, got, she suggested a tie that had cameras on it. And I have no such tie, and don't really want to wear a tie at this point in the evening. So I am joined, as always, by Jason Neifer, coming to us from beautiful and I'm sure cool Missoula, Montana. Jason, how are you tonight? And uh, do you feel ready to tackle these issues, especially after an exciting evening last night of probably surprises? I don't know. Maybe, maybe your crystal ball was better than the rest, the rest of the country's. Uh, well, uh, yes, um, I did spend most of the evening um, pretty much glued to uh, CNN plus uh, a couple of laptops and a tablet and a phone, and I was a bit surprised by the results of the election last night. Um, and um, I, my day job is that I am the uh, assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school in fabulous Missoula, Montana, and so um, as a, a, a part of the administrative team of that program, I was also keeping a close eye on statewide elections. And I'll be honest that my and I, I should also say my, my academic background is in political science. Um, and I did study political science in college. It's a topic I'm very interested in. And although I will fully admit that in the last two years, um, I have been a bit distracted from uh, uh, day, even day-to-day -day news, and up until about November of, of uh, about a year ago, I had stopped listening to news and stopped reading um, the political press as as closely as I had. And I have to say, unfortunately, I feel like I probably should uh, readopt that protocol. But lots of surprises in the elections last night. Um, Wes and I talked earlier that. We should probably have a conversation about, you know, maybe where a Trump victory um, or what a Trump victory means uh, uh, for the state of education in the United States. I will tell you on a very personal level, Montana is a uh, we, we're oftentimes referred to as a purple state, despite our, our oftentimes voting for um, red candidates for um, uh, uh, some statewide offices. We've had a Republican majority legislature for nearly 20 years now. Um, although we've had Democrats for governor since 2004, we've had uh, um, most of our statewide offices dominated by the Democratic Party. And last night, uh, Republicans won uh, four out of five statewide offices, which is unheard of. Um, uh, the only person that managed to eke, eke out a victory was our Democratic governor, who was running for re-election, and he won by just two points. Um, uh, Montana voted squarely in the red column last night. Uh, early results look like the legislature will continue Republican dominance in the House and Senate. And then we sent back our, our single congressman back to Congress despite uh, the congressman not having any, or I'm sorry, very few endorsements from statewide newspapers um, and having a very popular uh, candidate um, in response. So um, very interesting how things are playing playing um, uh, here in Montana. Well, we, uh, we are not a political show, although, you know, we're political animals, right? We're all, politics is all around us. Uh, and so I think it'd be kind of crazy for us not to not to talk a little bit about it. But I want to mention before I chime in with uh, how many screens I was using last night, uh, how I was, how I was uh, trying to stay appraised of things with, uh, it wasn't the second screen, it was the third and the fourth screen. Um, 
you can check out our show notes at edtechsr.com slash links. We want to thank our live viewers. Looks like we've got a, a couple live viewers. I know Peggy George is there, and I will do my best also to open the chat room. There is a live chat room that YouTube Live provides, which is sometimes a little bit tricky to uh, link to as we're in the show because it, it's not here in our in our live show window. Uh, but I definitely want to share a shout-out to uh, Diane Woodard, who I had a nice conversation with. She's in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and she said that she was starting to listen to the show and enjoying having my voice and Jason's in her car. I'm, I, I'm not sure why, but actually we you have a, a lot more history with Diane. So, yay, Diane, we're excited to be in your car with you as well. So <clears throat> I... Uh, I looked at the electoral map at about 11.10 last night and said, wow, I think this is going to go a different direction. I think I, I want to write a blog post about this. And so spent the next uh, three hours looking, looking on TV, watching CBS News on my phone, having CNN on, and then every you know, 10 minutes or so checking Fox News just on my laptop, you know, kind, kind of seeing what was, what was announced. So it was... Uh, it's definitely a historic and momentous event, and I feel like we're on a roller coaster that we're not sure exactly where it is going to where it is going to go. Uh, was was interesting being on a YouTube live webinar with uh, K twelve online organizers Monday night, including Susan Van Gelder up in Canada, who was thinking about us, and uh, you know, and then Peggy George, who's in there, is down in Arizona, right? Arizona almost uh, went to the, the Democrats for the first time uh, in, in uh, well, I was about to say I knew the statistic. I think it was like 20 years, but, you know, what, Pennsylvania flipped for the first time. You know, wow, uh, I have no idea what the, what the implications of this are for schools, you know, much less international relations and politics. One of the sidebars that I, you've probably picked up if, if you're uh, a frequent listener of the show is that uh, Jason and I have some debate background. I was on the speech and debate team only only one semester in high school, but I did that for four years in college and really enjoyed that. And political science was one of my majors as well as an undergraduate along with geography. So uh, anyway, we could, we could go on at, at great length, but uh, it was, it was kind of a somber and subdued mood at school. And I think there were, you know, there's just a lot of people wondering what, what is going to happen next. And certainly it points out the limits of data analysis and, you know, the importance of the human element. And I didn't even realize until tonight at the dinner table when we were talking and verified this that, that uh, Clinton did win the popular vote. So yep. uh, as a political scientist, Jason, how many times has that happened? Did, are you sure, and I'm putting you on the spot here, is presidential history, but it's not that often that someone no. has won the, won the electoral college but not won the popular vote. Right. It's hap- it happened in 2000, and I want to say there was two times before that as well. And, um, you know, and, and there are... Uh, the weird thing about this election is that you didn't hear much about education from either major candidate. Um, uh, you know, so there's obviously a lot of hand-wringing post-election about what Clinton could have done or should have done or would have done. But so far, you know, we are we are less than 24 hours into a president 
uh, elect Trump's uh, planning process for transition and the two names being tossed around um, for Secretary of Education are Ben Carson, which I find to be a bizarre pick, um, and then uh, one that's a little more closer to the issue, um, Bill Everett from the Hoover uh, institution is also being tossed around as well, and I'm guessing that uh, with both Mr. Carson and Mr. Evers, that charter schools will be a big part of the process. Um, obviously, Trump has mentioned Common Core dozens of times when stumping. Um, you know, uh, it, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a movement under uh, Trump administration or the Trump administration to get rid of the Department of Education and defer to uh, direct state action, which, of course, doesn't get rid of the Common Core because uh, the Common Core was not a Department of Education um, uh, initiative. But, you know, I think you're going to start hearing a lot of those, you know, typical national Republican education themes that will be repeated in Trump presidency. And without, uh, you know, um, without digging too much into, you know, uh, personal views on politics, because uh, I'm going to guess that a couple of guys that were on the debate team in college that had political science degrees could wax poetically about our views on these issues. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, I don't think Trump cares enough about education um, to other than picking broad themes that may have been popular with his base. And so whoever he picks as educational advisors will probably dominate whatever Trump administration's um, uh, views on education look like. And so if it ends up being Ben Carson or if it ends up being Mr. Evers from, uh, from Hoover, um, that is a, uh, that, that's going to give you a sense of what the next few years might look like. Um, there is a more subtle topic here that we could certainly dedicate um, uh, more time to, and I'm becoming more and more militant about this topic as time goes on. But, you know, Trump spoke very eloquently to those that were disaffected by globalization. And I'm of the personal opinion that you can't undo uh, globalization, that even if you build up extraordinary trade barriers, uh, if you pull back every trade agreement, if you renegotiate NAFTA and all the things that, that Trump promised during his administration, that doesn't bring back the millions of manufacturing jobs that are lost to automation. It doesn't bring back the millions of manufacturing jobs that are lost to um, divergent world labor markets. It also doesn't bring back the, the millions of manufacturing jobs that are lost to the fact that we are, uh, you know, a hundred million more people, a uh, hundred million more people or more than we were when those industries became, uh, you know, core to the U.S. economy decades ago. And so, you know, we probably have to reconsider jobs and work weeks and big, broad themes. Universal basic income. Exactly. And, uh, you know, those are all radical solutions, but we are going to face a radical problem. Like I, even if Trump man uh, uh, manages um, to, uh, you know, uh, to renegotiate the trade agreements, for example, it's a far cry from uh, being able to, you know, re-envision re an economy where manufacturing is not the core. Um, and so there's big topics here. I don't know if, um, if, if anyone's prepared to tackle them. I don't think Clinton was prepared to tackle them. And it's not because of Clinton. Honestly, I don't think it's because of Trump either. It's because I'm not sure if we're ready for the radical conversations that need to happen till we can reimagine what labor looks like um, in in a, a post-industrial world. And, um, you know, I, I, I get that 
it's really crappy that a lot of areas are dramatically impacted by globalization, the loss of manufacturing jobs. I just don't know if we can get those jobs back. And so we need to be looking for a transition, not a throwback. Well, I'll put in the show notes a link to the post I wrote last night over about a three-hour period, uh, which is uh, called Staying on Message in the Classroom After the Election. It ties to issues that are near and dear to our hearts here uh, in terms of education and preparing students and thinking about digital citizenship because I firmly believe that empowering students to share their voice, understanding how to respectfully share their ideas with others, having channels outside of our classroom, not just inside where, where we do that kind of sharing, uh, you know, and, and our, our democratic institutions rely on checks and balances, political participation, free expression. Uh, there's really important work for us to do, and I'll, I'll give a shout-out to the work of um, uh, Larry Lessig uh, and the Fix Democracy First movement, which is striving to fix electoral campaign finance and really get at the core of issues, which, you know, many people among other things, are, are angry about. When you're talking about globalization, Jason, and not being able to undo it, my thought, and this is a real big debate thing, it was one of our favorite things we would laugh about, and we'd run this. We'd run the third wave, right? And Alvin Toffler's book, The Third Wave, is hugely important because, you know, the <laughs> this is, uh, my shout-out is to Bill Casebeer, my uh, my friend who worked at, at DARPA and is at Lockheed now, and could could, if he could speak off the record, contribute significantly to the conversation we're about to have about the surveillance state. Um, Bill Casebeer's favorite thing was to talk about the third wave. The first wave was when we moved from hunter-gatherers to we became an agricultural society. The second wave was industrialization. And the third wave is the information economy, the service economy, the move to um, – you know, a, a, a whole ecosystem of work that is much less manufacturing-centered and labor market-centered and is based upon much more fluid and, you know, economic exchanges where people are exchanging services and, you know, we've got all kinds of consulting and, and contract work and the rise of the corporation and just some, some big, big, Big kind of changes, and so anyway, I agree. You can't undo globalization. Uh, I'm, I, you know, we've talked about. I think last time, books that touch on the Thomas Friedman book, "The World Is Flat." I think that's a really important book to to have read and to understand. And as we think about all this kind of stuff, you know, certainly reactionary uh, responses to what's happening in the world are, are going to take place. I certainly didn't forecast or think that that was going to happen, you know, you know, in, in the presidency. But uh, we definitely need changes. There's stuff to be upset about. There's stuff to be concerned about. And we're going to um, talk about that tonight in, in the context of the surveillance state. And, you know, here we've had a pretty dramatic change in politics. What, what does this mean? And, and will this be a benevolent change or will this, you know. Does this portend some very dark, you know, fascist tendencies and a challenge to many of the fundamental democratic institutions that we have in the United States? I'm hopeful that it will not. But uh, we have important roles to play as citizens, not only being connected and aware, but also being involved. And overall in the election, it was definitely hard and probably still is to talk politics. And you hear people say, don't talk politics and, and religion. Um, but, uh, I, I read some things and did, did have some conversations with, with my parents, with my, uh, with my sister and, and brother-in-law who did vote on the other side of the aisle to, you know, how, how the, my wife and I voted. And, um, 
I, I think it's important that we engage in, in, in civil discourse and that we have opportunities to listen to each other and that we navigate these changes because one of the things I think we can be pretty confident of is that these things are happening far faster than yep. any of us are ready for and most of us are expecting. And I think our last show we talked about, you know, truck driving and autonomous cars. Today I just saw a headline with uh, Elon Musk talking about UBI, universal basic income. You know, it is, it's happening fast, folks. And that this, the, the statistic from last time was that the truck driving, oh no, this was, this was the, the show with Cheryl Oaks and Alice Barr. Alice, uh, that uh, truck driving is the number one, in 2014, truck driving was the number one uh, job uh, in 29 U.S. states, including Oklahoma and Maine. And, you know, we are going to see the disruption of trucking by autonomous you know, robotic driving cars, and these are going to have big impacts to our economy. So we need uh, leadership and we need voices that are reasoned and not just, you know, outlier <laughs> reactionary. And so hopefully we're going to see President-elect Trump surround himself with some smart people that are capable and that are going to, you know, act in, in the long-term interests of the country, not just the short-term interests of people who are angry and, you know, would like to somehow go back to a day that will not return when we had plentiful labor jobs that required very low skills and very, very little in the way of um, higher education and provided stability as well as expectation of, uh, sol of solid income. So we, we got we to gotta re rethink things in this era. Did you guys ever run the third wave in debate in high school, Jason? Um, we, we did a little bit in college, um, as a, by, by the time I, I was debating in college, the, the argument was called a critique and the, the big K was dominant. In fact, I think, I don't remember, know if I know this history well enough. I might have been at the tournament where the critique was born, actually, um, and had one run against me, um, in, in a preliminary round there. But, um, uh, shout out to, uh, Pagriba and Turner on the Carroll College debate team that, uh, cut the famous card, the media will preserve the symbol, the best K card in the history. But, uh, the, yeah, uh, we, and, you know, debate changed quite a bit in the 90s, uh, and then changed again in the 2000s, has changed yeah. again in the 2010s. But, um, yeah, that was a great argument. And, and I, I think that, you know, like we, that what we sometimes term as techno panic in the United States is really just coming to terms with the fact that technology changes things fairly dramatically. And, um, you know, I, I'm going to, uh, I may not recommend it this week, but this week's note to self podcast is about, um, you know, creating, um, or the, the future of creating Borgs out of humans, right? Like what can we augment about the human reality, including intelligence and, and physical endeavors that could make us essentially live forever. And, you know, like those are all pretty scary things, but that, that is, that is a future that we, you know, need to be aware of. And whether or not it will happen to the extent science fiction suggests it will, that doesn't diminish the fact that we have, uh, you know, an extraordinary time of, of amazing technology that is is challenging us in, in no other time before. So that's a big piece. I want to segue us to our discussion, but the, the thought I just had here is one of the reasons this is important, and it's extremely valuable to me to get together with Jason and, and sometimes others on an almost weekly basis and, and process this is one of the things we're doing here is processing change. And as a, a, a conference keynote speaker and someone who uh, – who 
sort of, I think, successfully, to, depending on how you judge success. I mean, I, I did that for five years, uh, and our family still ate. Uh, it was uh, – it's a tough road to be independent, but one of the things I I really did learn to appreciate as a educational technology speaker and continue to think about when I have a chance to share presentations is that one of the services that we provide for teachers and for our fellow human beings is opportunities to meaningfully process change and to be exposed to some new ideas, but also have a filter and a lens offered on, on how to, uh, how to, how to receive and what to do about those changes and just to process it. You know, we, we, we sometimes romanticize the old days when we sat on the porch with our lemonade and, you know, pr- probably didn't just plot how to overturn the, the uh, pillars of racism and sexism in our society. There's all kinds of bad things and things that we need to change, you know, from the past, but there was, there were slower times in life. You know, even today, I think if you don't live in a city and you live out in a rural area, <clears throat> anyway, this, this is important to me and valuable to me. And hopefully it is to those of you listening and, and you know, whether you're tuning in live or listening after the fact, uh, so I'm I'm thrilled to get to do this because it it it's important. We are we're living in change. What is it? Rapid discontinuous change in the elbow of the exponential growth curve. There's different ways that people will say this. Uh, this manifests itself in different ways in our lives, and I and I do think that the surveillance state is is an example of this. And so I want to, with full disclosure, I'll let you know that I have put in for the ISTE conference this year in San Antonio, Texas, for Jason and I a proposal to talk about digital citizenship in the surveillance state. Um, you can access that proposal and relevant links at edtechsr.com slash NSA as a shout out to the National uh, Security Agency and the, the role that the NSA has played in the surveillance state. Uh, but one of the things I did, in, and, and also I'm selfishly wanting to do this because not this weekend, but the weekend after, I'll be in Enid, Oklahoma with our youngest daughter, and we're both slated to give TEDx talks. And uh, the topic of mine is uh, digital citizenship in the surveillance state. So I'm eager to hear what Jason has to say and would love to hear your feedback uh, on these topics and issues because I do not profess to have the answers to this, but I know that these are hugely important issues. There are things that have crept up on us pretty quickly since 9-11 especially, but also just in the way that the internet and technology has advanced and matured, and this very open internet, which was, you know, started by the hippies of Silicon Valley and was a real open sharing environment, has in some ways become co-opted by authoritarian regimes and by institutions inside government that would seek to know everything they can about our actions and our behaviors so that they would be able to stop crime, prevent terrorism, but in some cases also stifle dissent and ensure that the the state is not challenged politically by people who not only think differently but want to act differently and want to organize and advocate for change. So right. there's a lot of overlap here between the lives Jason and I have led and lead with political science studies and interest in international relations and then technology and the internet and the, the maturing of all this. So I've, I've put a whole bunch of guiding questions down. 
um, honestly, this can be a whole graduate course that one of us could teach, and maybe maybe one of us will, right? Maybe yeah. that'll be a direction yeah. that this will take because I really look at you know the chance to have this conversation tonight to share this TEDx talk and, and possibly at ISTE, which, by the way, Jason, if you get to go face-to-face, it's looking more and more like I may be in Jackson Hole the last week of um, of June for iPad Media Camp. Um, anyway, this you know, I might video conference in, but it, it is – a conversation that needs to happen, and I'm very much seeking answers and also seeking the questions to this. So uh, I'm going to any, any any introductory thoughts before we kind of go into these questions, Jason, about the whole conversation we are going to have tonight. Well, no, it, other than it really does articulate where we need to be uh, being cautious about adoption of technology in our personal lives and in the classroom, right? Like every time you hear a speaker, including Wes, including me, that talks about the power of these technologies, understand that that power is powerful in, in a number of contexts, including, you know, monitoring and 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 surveilling is surveilling a word surveilling you, um, you know, uh, as part of your daily life. And part of what you need to be conscious of, and part of what I think students may or may not be conscious of, is that, um, you know, we we have to be cautious about that and. Um, you know, the revelations from Edward Snowden certainly started this, this, this conversation discussion, but it's, it's, it's broad, it's real, and it requires your utmost attention. So the first question that I, I posed here is what personal stories can you share which highlight the importance of the discussion about digital surveillance? And on our edtechsr.com slash NSA link, uh, you'll find some resources and, and recommendations for uh, documentaries to take a look at, frontline documentaries uh, from PBS, um, a really great, great article that's called If You're Not, Par- if you're not Paranoid, You're Crazy. Um, that article starts with a story. Um, as we seek to educate ourselves and others on these topics, I think it's important for us to remember the power of story and the importance of story. And so this is kind of what I'm thinking about starting the TEDx with. And and I've shared this a a little bit with Jason. And by the way, shout out to Martin Horaji of the University of Montana, who challenged us, and I hope we'll be able to do this enough to kind of just throw down the gloves or whatever and just say, hey, where are we with surveillance? Let's just just hear your full thing, because sometimes we're a little, um, you know, shadowed or we, we we might make oblique references but not really say well this is what i think you know about some of this stuff because it does there there's a continuum of paranoia here and one of the questions is you know where's the line between reasonable awareness and concern about surveillance and paranoia and unreasonable fear and and so i think about y2k and other kinds of things that we've we've faced as a country regarding technology so my quick story is uh, in, in, in listening to books about surveillance and, and reading these kinds of things, uh, a couple weeks ago, I was, uh, in our kitchen, uh, having my phone, listening, listening to some, you know, podcast probably. And I, I really do, I know, need to be more active and, you know, I need to, I need to lose some weight. I need to just be more physically fit. And so, you know, I, I'm not the, the, uh, the pacing tracker guy that Jason is with how many steps he can get per day, which he is, he's, he's on the Guinness Book of World Records, you know, uh, pushing the envelope there. But anyway, so I do look at that every once in a while on my phone and I've got this app called Pacer. So I've read this article by, um, 
Oh my gosh, I don't remember his name. We'll have to pull it out. The the uh, if you're if you're not crazy, you're par- if you're not paranoid, you're crazy. Uh, and he talks about your devices listening to you. Well, literally, I open up my pantry, I get out some Cheetos, and I'm, I'm going to town on these Cheetos. And my my notifications on my phone come up and say, "Be sure to avoid foods that are tempting to make sure you don't overindulge or binge or something." And this is happening like as I'm munching on the Cheeto. And so the thought, of course, is. My freaking phone is listening to me. <laughs> what is going on with this? And so the author of that article has a story about chestnuts where he tells something. We probably had something happen where, you know, we click a link and you've set a cookie. And therefore, every time you go to Facebook, you see an ad for such and such. Um, but this was, was different. And so what I found out was that I had my microphone turned on for Facebook and for Google and for Pacer. And, you know, these apps can talk with each other and exchange information. And the bottom line is I really do think that my phone heard me munching on these Cheetos and then gave me a contextual notification saying, hey, it's uh, probably not a good idea for your health. Yeah, it was shaking the finger at me. Yep. So have you had any weird things happen, Jason, where you've kind of thought, uh, I think my phone may be, you know, getting more information about me than I, than I need. I mean, another story I could tell is the, is the Foursquare one where we were getting donuts one morning yeah. on a Saturday and a phone rang. This is a really small donut shop. By the way, if you come to Oklahoma City and visit, I'll take you there. Uh, and it has the best, um, apple fritters you'll ever have. They say they're the best kolaches. They're not. Those are in Lubbock, Texas at another little place I can take you to. But these are the best apple fritters. And anyway, we're there and the phone rings. Uh, we're just in line checking out. And the guy said, West Fryer? And we're like, yeah, and pick up the phone and they don't say anything. And, and then, or maybe I said, hi, and who is this or whatever? And they hang up, but it totally freaked me out. And I, and I dropped Foursquare that moment. Like we drove home, like, are we, is somebody robbing our house? Cause I had checked in in Foursquare saying that we're here getting donuts. And it was a very spooky and weird thing. That's different from a surveillance state, but it has to do with disclosure and privacy and how much, you know, we're sharing. Those are right. kind of the two biggest things I've had happen to me that was like, whoa, it's a jarring thing. By the way, when you share that story, Wes, um, and I think you blogged about it, I stopped using Foursquare 2 the very same day. Like that was jarring enough to me to highlight the, you know, the real issues with a location sharing service. Uh, you know, I do check in on Facebook still, but that's not public, right? That's that's people I share things friend-wise. But my story that's similar to that is that um, I was teaching a, a training for teachers in 2008, and one of the things that I wanted to do with them was share with them Facebook um, because at that point, Facebook was less considered to be the go-to place for adults, right? still had that uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, college uh, feel to it, unregulated by adults, yada, yada, yada. And so um, I had a, a, a fake email account that I'd been using all weekend long um, to, uh, to set up new accounts so I could demonstrate to a group of 25 teachers setting up new accounts, you know, within this 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 uh, fake email address, and I had that fake email address forward my emails to my main email address so I could keep track of it, and I set up a Facebook account that day, and that day I spent six minutes in Facebook. Um, I got on and created a fake name and a fake uh, uh, a profile. Um, I, did, I put a fake picture on, but otherwise I kind of liked things and put a location in that was otherwise accurate. And what was crazy about that to me is that I still get emails about every two weeks from Facebook saying, hey, Norman Hobart, that was my fake name. 
we found some people you might be interested in, and it shows me people I know, right? Those are people that either I am friends with on Facebook or I'm not friends on Facebook, but I know otherwise. And you may remember that during the discussion about surveillance video, or I'm sorry, government surveillance in the early Obama administration, there a lot of people called this a, a, a kind of a, a, a turn on the part of both Obama and Biden regarding metadata, but they said that it's less important about what the message is, but rather who you're connecting with that can help us track you down and understand whether or not you might be troubling to uh, government investigating X, Y, and Z. And the fact that every two weeks there is an email in my email box that reminds me that Norman – the fake profile I set up in 2008 is still being associated with people that I myself associate with in the physical realm tells me the power of metadata and the fact that the government doesn't even need to listen to your conversations to know quite a bit about you and what's maybe important to you. Absolutely. And I just have uh, finally gotten the pop-out chat. And so Vicki uh, Sedgwick says, why is Wes wearing sunglasses? It, yeah. And Peggy says, not sure, but it's, it's just, we're doing, we're talking surveillance state here. So I'm, I'm not hiding my identity, but I just decided I needed to do something, something fun for this conversation. So to your point, Jason, about the, uh, the uncanny ability of Facebook to make those connections, one of the stories that again, I think comes from this article, if you're not paranoid, you're crazy, uh, talks about folks going to, um, their AA meetings where <clears throat> typically they won't exchange their real identities, but yep. they will, you know, exchange a phone number and be able to support each other and call, but they're not planning on knowing each other face to face, getting together face to face. And what happens when you put that phone number into your iPhone and you authorize Facebook to have access to your contacts is that it's able to connect the dots. And so what happens in, in some of these cases is that someone is on on Facebook the next day and suddenly is seeing the face of this person with their first and last name who they were just in an, an AA meeting and are you know, supposed to not really know who they are. And suddenly Facebook is saying, Hey, we think, you know, so-and-so you may want to friend them. And so the, the sharing that we do, and sometimes that's even just clicking on the app to say, yes, I will let Google have access to, you know, so-and-so or, or I'll, I'll give this, third-party account access to my Gmail or to my Facebook um, can allow some, some, some big things to happen in terms of, of access. I think of the Pokemon app for iOS when it first came out, and, and I don't think that it was maliciously done, but I can't believe developers would do this, that it somehow granted full edit rights to your Google account if you logged in with that. And so theoretically, the developers could have grabbed any document that you had in your Google Drive and, you know, deleted it or, or done something with it. But, um, Jason, what do you – where are you today in your thinking about the surveillance state? Um, what is the current state of surveillance in the United States, and why does it matter? Well, for me, I, I think it's, it's, it's obvious that the government is, is, um, is, is really keeping close tracks on everything, right? Like their attempts in the last eight years to grab massive data caches, whether they have the ability to analyze them or not, uh, metadata from phone calls and cell phone calls. And there was all the you know, stuff from Edward Snowden that, that suggested that the, uh, uh, NSA was 
hacking routers and adding firmware and backdoors into common internet devices that you pick up at your local Best Buy or, or Fry's um, was was really troubling to me. But the bottom line is is that that's likely not going to impact me directly because I am not I'm not terrorist. I'm not overthrowing the government. I'm not engaged in, in illegal activities, uh, beyond, um, you know, maybe some, 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 you know, relatively low grade stuff, right? Um, you know, I, I occasionally might download something that is commercially, uh, 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 available commercially, although now that I'm an adult and I have money, it doesn't matter as much, right? But the, the bottom line is that it does trouble me that both that it's happening, maybe not necessarily with, full congressional approval, but more importantly, that I seem to be ambivalent to it because it's not directly impacting me. And, you know, I am a, uh, uh, I am a big fan of the Fourth Amendment. I think that our government, uh, you know, true freedom is also freedom from government intrusion when they can't go through the logical rule structure we have set up uh, to be able to, um, um, uh, uh, access, uh, uh, you know, a, a probable cause to, to engage in more aggressive government search. And I think that, that, that if we knew the true extent of what was built post 9-11, we would be all fairly disgusted, but it's happening mostly in secret and without government approval. Yeah. So my answer to this is, is strongly informed by, by lots of reading <clears throat> as well as watching documentaries. I'm, uh, I gave the shout out earlier to, uh, Frontline and, and the PBS series. I, I just love that whole show and series. And they did a great episode called The United States of Secrets. And that is a, is a pretty eye opening, uh, episode. You know, one of the, it, Edward Snowden, which we'll directly ask a question about here in a little bit on whether he was a, uh, a helpful and moral whistleblower or an immoral traitor. Uh, the revelations of Edward Snowden, whatever you think about his decision to do that, have certainly expanded our ability to talk knowledgeably about some of what is happening because a ton of, of what's happening, you know, is, is clothed in secrecy or shrouded in secrecy. And, and our government has a, has a vested interest in, in keeping that capability and that capacity a secret. <clears throat> so my perception is that there is, there are unprecedented levels of both corporate and government surveillance happening today. We are not only being tracked in terms of metadata with the information of who we called and, and the connections we made. And, and by the way, uh, maybe we can answer this next, Jason. I think a key question to answer is for the person who says, but I'm not doing anything illegal. Why should I care that all of this is being you know, collected? I think that would be a really good thing to answer because that is the response a lot of people give to this is it's a eh. You know, so what? You know, I'm not I'm not breaking the law, so why should I care? But what we know because because of Snowden, and we have a, a glimpse into, is that the United States government has put into these massive internet pipes where all the traffic coming in and out of the United States uh, capture devices, and these were done post 9/11 with the idea of stopping terrorism and stopping another attack. But the legal basis for that was at one point shaky and it, at another point completely non-existent. But, but these things persisted and, and have continued. 
And those not only capture meta information, but capture wholesale, you know, conversations of basically anything that you have that's not encrypted. But in addition to that, we've got hackers that have the ability. So we've got three prongs. We have government surveillance that's happening. And not only do we have the U.S. government involved in that, but we've got lots of other governments, many of which are authoritarian and do not you know, respect freedom and, and, and speech. And I'm thinking of, of Middle Eastern uh, countries in particular, but also, you know, China and, and um, you know, places like Bahrain and, uh, and, and uh, Qatar and Iran and, and places like that. So you've got governmental entities involved in this. <clears throat> we have hackers involved in this. And there's some really scary stuff that, that not, if you drive by certain places um, that are, that are, military institutions or military installations, uh, let's say in the state of Nevada, uh, your phone can be complete. They can suck data off of your phone. And, and I, and I believe this and I've read credible sources who, who talk about this. So and this is, this is why if you go to black hat, which is the Las Vegas conference where the hackers get together, <clears throat> basically don't bring your device. And if you, and if, even if you bring it, don't, <laughs> yeah. don't turn it on because yep. it's not just a Bluetooth thing. I mean, there's capabilities now, <clears throat> even with your new credit card, with your chip card, we just had the first instance with one of our credit cards of somebody, you know, in, in Arkansas, we didn't know, you know, using a card that we just had to cancel. And that's probably happened to a lot of people with identity theft. But evidently, you need to put your card in a sheath now because there are ways that people can be sucking that number off of your card because there's some kind of a broadcast beacon. I need to get some more detail about that and because that's a pretty significant thing that, hey, I'm carrying this card around and suddenly, you know, it's broadcasting the number if I don't put it in some kind of a protective sheath. But <clears throat> hackers now have the ability, and that's, this is brought out in that episode, the U.S. of Secrets in Frontline, to literally be a, and there was a U.S. congressman that agreed to be a part of this, that simply knowing your number, there are back doors that are available in the cellular phone uh, technology that allow them to wholesale, you know, listen to your um, listen to your conversations and then record those and capture all of those. In addition, um, hackers and governments have the ability to remotely and surreptitiously activate the microphone on your phone, on your computer. Uh, right now, I have a light that's on the FaceTime camera of my MacBook Pro, but they can activate that without your knowledge and surveil you. There are a lot of companies today selling services where you can keep track of your kids, you know, but they're actually being used to stalk people. And, you know, if, if through one phishing message, and I'm saying phishing with P-H-I-S-H, um, you know, suddenly you ha you've now installed a back door to your system that is going to allow somebody to gather all kinds of, of potentially incriminating or just information that they can use against you. That's the second tier. And the third tier is the corporate. And this is perhaps a little bit less insidious and concerning, but, you know, these companies would like us to be able to walk into their store and know who we are, connect the dots. When we sign up for a rewards program at Walgreens or CVS Pharmacy or whatever supermarket, and they say, can we have your email address? You know, uh, what they're doing is they're connecting dots and selling our information to folks that want to know, oh, you just, you bought this kind of dog food at this time. You know, and a couple stories that have happened there's a famous one, which these are kind of cultural literacy stories. It's like, does everyone know this? Where this dad got really angry that his teenage daughter was receiving uh, marketing email, marketing mail in the snail mail from Target about being pregnant and marketing pregnant yeah. stuff or, you know, things right. for, for pregnant women. And he was very angry and was 
you know, I don't know what what the right answer or what the way right way to couch. Pardon me, his response, but it turns out that his daughter was pregnant, and Target knew that before he did, based upon her behavior on social media and and with digital technologies in terms of the things that she disclosed and the the things that it, that the dots that they connected. So. The surveillance state is far bigger and more ubiquitous. Um, the ways in which, you know, fa face recognition technologies are able to identify us when, when we go through a customs line, you know, I, and, and I have not had a, a classified security clearance. I think I maybe will say that at the start of the, of the TEDx talk since um, 94. <clears throat> You know, so my information here isn't based on being, you know, an insider for classified information. I'm not blowing the whistle, you know, as a as a as an insider with classified knowledge. But I'm sure that we our eyes would be really, really wide open if we were were to see the dots that can be connected when when we go to the airport and when the customs officials, you know, scan the driver's license, scan the passport. And even, you know, when they're able to to see our face and, and connect the dots. So we are peering dimly into a really big, dark closet of activity. And it's not limited to simply one actor. We've got governmental actors. We have corporate actors. And then we also have, um, you know, black hat ha hackers that are involved in this as well. Yep, absolutely. So, Jason, why does it? Why does privacy matter today? Uh, and why does this whole why does this whole conversation matter? Is this something that we should be having with with students if we want to take this? You know, think about classroom and digital citizenship and that kind of thing. Well, I guess I would start with the notion that it, it's you know your privacy doesn't matter to you as much until it matters to you, and so we should take a a proactive approach to help people understand what data is available and under what circumstances, and to have, have people have more control on their own. And as an example of this, um, you know, part of this is understanding the tools that you use and who you need to know to trust. But you know, I oftentimes will surprise teachers and shock them by showing them you know, the archives of data that Google and Facebook um, collect about you. Google collects your searches when you're logged into your Google account. It, it collects your YouTube watching history. It collects the literal audio clips when you talk to your cell phone or to a browser or my geek of the week tonight will be to show off my new fancy Amazon home. Or I'm sorry, Amazon home, Google home, which also uh, utilizes a voice activated approach where it does store that data for you permanently, um, including the actual audio clip. And I'm comfortable with Facebook and I'm comfortable with Google doing that because I trust them as companies. The problem is, is there are every service you sign into is probably collecting personal data on you that is um, uh, 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 capitalizing on that data, literally capitalizing on that data through some sort of, 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 of product exchange with advertisers. Um, that you may or may not be comfortable with. And it's easy to take this to government extremes, whereas most of us will likely not be to the scrutiny of the government, um, you know, in our day-to-day -day activities. We will be, however, the scrutiny or to the scrutiny of advertisers and those trying to profit off our personal data. And you need to be at least aware of the situation and, um, you know, be proactive about that. And I don't think that our, the tools that we adopt and use, um, uh, do a very good job of educating us as end users um, about how that process works. And so I think that's an important start to that. What about you, Wes? Um, you know, I think that there are security and 
confidentiality and private. And it, there are issues about our personal safety that yes. touch on, for instance, the the story of the New York Times columnist who, you know, posts on social media, he'd be out of town and he got robbed that weekend. You know, when I was at the donut place and had this weird call, which by the way, we still don't have resolved. I, I don't know if somebody was just doing a prank or if it was somebody who actually said, you know, I, I don't know. I want to freak Wes out. Uh, it did. Um, but there are, there are limits to the things that we should generously share. That's a question that I, I put in here somewhere, you know, down the, down the list. Cause I'm a big fan of sharing. In fact, I almost wore my creative Commons shirt. I love to share cause I do, but there need to be limits to the things that we share, not only because we could be exploited and we could be potentially offering up, you know, our own children or our students to exploitation and, and manip and uh, not really manipulation, but just, you know, the harvesting of data. And, and um, again, these things might seem innocuous, but we don't know at this point, the unintended consequences of these dots being connected. Uh, one of the things we've talked about repeatedly on this show is artificial intelligence and the march forward of these tools that are going to allow for just huge capacities of, of, of people and machines and then the merging of people and machines, cyborgs, to, to connect the dots. And so, you know, it, it's not a it's not a, a complete fantasy to think about an insurance company or a, a bank, you know, denying yeah. your application at some point for something for insurance, medical coverage or for a refinance of a home or a purchase of of a vehicle or whatever <clears throat> and saying, no, I'm sorry, we've decided you're not a good risk. And because of a long string of things that have been shared and their analyses of patterns, and we're talking about incredible multivariate analysis, like way beyond anything Jason's going to get done in his dissertation or I, I did or ever will do, um, that, that, that it, we just don't know what the, the consequences of all that are. And so that I think that all of us need to make decisions about what our boundaries are for personal sharing. You know, some people have a very draconian, yeah, I just, I'm not on Facebook at all. I'm not on social media at all. <clears throat> Clearly that's not where I live. I think there's tremendous benefit to, to the sharing economy, but at the same time, you know, I'm seeking that answer myself. Where, where should that boundary lie? <clears throat> and then how do we want to help coach others to make the decision? Because just like it is with a lot of things like, like parenting or um, deciding, uh, you know, I don't know how you're going to, how you're going to responsibly uh, I'm thinking about consuming alcohol. There's probably a better way, a better analogy than that. But I mean, there's things that are legal, but you've got to decide, well, junk food. Okay. Let's just talk about fast food. You know, how, how are you going to navigate the, the need and importance of nutrition and, and healthy living with uh, the wonderful taste of Cheetos and the, the, the great uh, ease of, of going to fast food and getting stuff quick. I mean, how, how do you make those choices and navigate that? And that's not something you can just say, hey, this is the one way everybody needs to live and everyone needs to do what I'm doing. There's going to be different answers for different people. And I think that's true in this whole space of privacy. Uh, we're going to have some people that are going to want to be further out on the edge of sharing more. But I think that it's, 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 it's healthy and it's also a safety factor. Uh, and, and we can't completely put our finger on it today because, I mean, I've had some of those, those jarring experiences happen, but, you know, I haven't had 
uh, someone deny us our family medical coverage because, you know, we disclosed too much medical history or because they connected dots and said, oh, well, then you're a genetic risk for this and et cetera. Right. So, I don't know. That's, well, and I have a heightened sense of that, too, because as we've discussed before on this program, I am a kidney transplant recipient. Um, my renal system failed due to a childhood ailment that wasn't um, uh, um, I discovered until I was in my 30s. And at the same time, I happen to be a chubby American, right? And if I decide to have a peanut butter cup, which is, I think, very much within my right uh, during the holiday season, and um, and I'm drinking my, my, my glass of healthy red wine tonight, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, like, I feel like that I'm still a very healthy person, um, uh, you know, that, that I, I, I don't feel like I should have to answer to those decisions, right? Um, and there is a, a, a clear scenario where, where data is connected inappropriately between, you know, when I'm ordering a pizza versus when I'm, um, you know, uh, uh, when I'm, I'm taking out health insurance that we can be called to task for those things. And, you know, I, I think big data has a lot of power, although big data was certainly kicked in the groin last night. Um, <laughs> the, uh, um, you know, the big data uh, is it could be a, a very great thing for humanity. The bottom line is, is that, um, you know, there, there are risks by hooking together data that we are not prepared for in our culture because we've built a lot of our cultural expectations around privacy and around individualism and about kind of the rugged individualism that's part of the narrative of our culture and our nation. And that that's a real issue. Right. And we have to come to terms with that. But, um, you know, right now it's not it's not super great where we're at with this. So I'm going to challenge you, Jason, to take a look because we're, we're nearing the top of the hour. Uh, we haven't even hardly scratched the surface of these questions. But to right. for you to pick a question in all of those that jumps out at you, Peggy George, our wonderful uh, live fan, who's a, who's, who's a, our most dedicated fan. Peggy, we're going to come up with some kind of, of wonderful thank you for you for being our, our most dedicated EdTech SR fan. She says that her main question is this idea about reasonable awareness versus paranoia. And, and how do we know the difference and what do we do about it? Uh, interestingly, this comes down to some issues we've seen in the election, you know, with fake news and Facebook and people forwarding things that aren't true, you know, and, and authority, right? This is a really important question. How do you, how do you decide what to believe, you know, in, in your face-to-face -face life and in your digital life? Um, who, who are the trusted authorities that you that you go to and say, you know what, J Jason Neifer said this, or, you know, um, Larry Lessig said this, or whatever, and, and you you assign that a high level of credibility because of a past relationship and a, and a past history of, or, or maybe it's just appeal to authority and somebody else has said, hey, this, this person really knows what they're talking about. So, um, you know, I, I think that, Number one, and this, this also goes beyond just thinking about it, we don't want to live in fear, right? I don't think that we want to be driven by fear. This is a really important thing about the election, too. You know, we're on this, we're on this roller coaster. You know, a lot of the country did not see this campaign result happening. And we would be poorly served if, if we have that foremost in our minds, you know, and, and we're going to, we live in fear thinking, you know, I don't, I don't know what Donald Trump is going to do in January when he takes office. Therefore, you know, I'm going to have a lot of the joy sapped out of my life because that's, you know, front and center of, on my radar screen. So I think that knowing the difference, it also, it has to do with the, 
the ability that we have to have a, a healthy life balance and not be consumed by this because uh, I've actually, and I've got a few books on the shelves here behind me, uh, spent a, a, a great deal of time and at parts of my life uh, researching issues like the, uh, the POW MIA issue in the United States and the alleged abandonment of uh, Americans in Laos' uh, secret war, which we were never officially fighting. We were never officially fighting in Cambodia. Uh, and there's actually a, a history of, of uh, really not great treatment happening to POWs going back at, at least to World War II, you know, and things that, that happened in uh, Korea and other places. And so <clears throat> when you get into these kind of things, and I mean, I've read about Iran-Contra, I've read about, you know, uh, secret stuff that, that the United States government has, has been involved in for, for a long time. I think there's some Noam Chomsky books behind me here on the, on the shelf. Um, it's, it's possible to be consumed by it and to, and to really, um, you know, think, think about it uh, beyond, I think, what could be considered healthy. So I think we want to have an informed perspective where we can glimpse into this and take reasonable precautions. It's, it's a little bit like living in, in Oklahoma with tornadoes, right? Uh, and we earthquakes, by the way, I was, our family was just a few miles from the epicenter of what was originally said a 5.3 on Sunday night. And it was downgraded to a 5.0, but we got some serious earthquakes going on here and Cushing, Oklahoma, which is where that was, is where pretty much all the pipelines, oil pipelines of America come, come together. So anyway, we live in tornado alley. This is a La Nina year. The last, this, that means we're going to have less, um, probably less moisture and fewer storms, but they're probably going to be bigger. Uh, the last La Nina year we had in 2011, we had five major F5s across the country and that was Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And, you know, it'd be possible to really live in fear here, but we, we try to be informed. We try to take precautions. We try to have plans of what we're going to do, um, but we don't obsess about it. And we're, you know, using that information and those resources that we have to hopefully, you know, be prepared. So I, I think related to this probably is cyber attack and the degree to which, um, you know, I don't think any of us can reasonably prepare for a month of, of no access to grocery stores, but you know, we could have a natural disaster happen tomorrow. There could be an ice storm. There could be, you know, some, some kind of thing that causes a power outage. Um, you know, are you going to be able to, to cook? Are you going to be able to get by? I think uh, you can talk to FEMA and our emergency preparedness friends, both in government and, and outside in civil service and get some ideas that we need to be prepared for things. So. Jason, do you have an answer for that? And then is there another question you want to go to? How, how do you how do you walk the line between paranoia and reasonable concern? Well, and, and I think part of it is that, especially for bright, articulate people, paranoia is a is a thought exercise that you need to go through in order to find what the balance looks like. And it's okay to sometimes go to extremes in order to challenge yourself to to find what the right balance looks like. And so, um, you know, like I wouldn't say I'm particularly paranoid about data privacy. Um, but I, at the same time, I take reasonable steps to make sure that my data is secured the best way I know how, which includes good passwords, utilizing a VPN service when I'm in open Wi-Fi, um, you know, being careful about, uh, you know, sharing personal data on websites that I'm unaware of, using um, fake uh uh, uh, identities in, in web services that I'm not familiar with, yada, yada, yada. And I think that part of that is 
um, you know, the, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's good to bring a, you know, healthy bit of, of, of cynicism to the world as it relates to your privacy. And so I think that's really the balance. Um, it's an awful sad life to go through, or it's an awful sad world to go through if you're spending your life being extremely paranoid, but at the same time, these are paranoid inducing times. And I don't think necessarily we have, um, a good sense broadly in our culture about how much our data may be exposed. And so, uh, you know, like I, I don't want to live in fear, but at the same time, I don't think a little bit of fear is necessarily going to be, um, you know, a, a terrible thing to bring to the party. All right. Well, why don't you take us to one of these other questions? We'll tackle that for a little bit. And then I think we probably are, are going to need to do geeks of the week and, and uh, get out of here. So not, not to say we got to just go super fast, but any, sure. any of these other questions which really jump out at you as one that we should, we should tackle tonight. Yeah. I, I like the last one on our list. How do people stay up uh, on, on uh, up to date on surveillance issues? And one of the things that, that I've become very acutely aware of is that no one reads more technology news than people like me and Wes, right? Um, <laughs> we are obsessed about looking, this. And one of the things I love about the podcasting world is that I can surround myself with extraordinary amounts of very detailed information that no one else really cares about, right? Like tonight, um, I was using my new Google Home to listen to the current Ooh. edition about uh, about uh, all about Android, which is a Twitch uh, a podcast. Uh, you were listening to that through your Google Home thing. Yeah, yeah. I'll show you oh. a little later about how amazing that thing is. But um, the uh, uh, you know, and I, I I listen to two hours of Android news a week, right? Like I'm a huge nerd, right? And Jason, but, I was listening to your conversation with your wife since I just hacked into your home uh, thanks to your device. And no, yeah, I didn't do that. Yeah, there you go. There you go. It's a pretty boring conversation. Like we're both <laughs> moping about the election, but. Um, the, um, you know, the bottom line is, is that, that, you know, I don't think you need to be a super nerd to keep up with these things, but I do think that you should, you know, when there are headlines related to, and a good example of this is the Apple password encryption thing in California, uh, when Apple was fighting the government's request to, uh, you know, to, to open up a phone, like as a consumer, you should know what the makers of your devices do in regards to your private data. And I think you owe it to yourself to at least keep ca casually aware of that um, by keeping, and I have the hiccups. I've been mentioning I've been drinking wine earlier, but the, the bottom line is, is that, you know, you have to keep up with the, at least the headlines of that. And don't be afraid to pick up a, 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 a publication like CNET or Lifehack or the Register. And I'll pick up on that because I think when it comes to technology, how many people do you know that start a conversation by saying, well, you know, I'm just not a tech person. Well, you know, this technology is just not, you know, it's, I've been struck by how many superintendents in, 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 in some cases abdicate responsibility for decision-making regarding technology because they say, that's not my thing. I leave that to other people where they would never say that hopefully about finance, about human resources and employment, you know, decisions. I mean, there are certain things that are the purview of the, the school district superintendent that, you know, they, they've got to own. They are responsible for it. They are accountable for it. 
I think there's a general tendency in a lot of society today, especially among older adults, to push off technology issues and say, well, I don't understand that. I don't, I don't do that. And one of the, the, the things that the, inter- the Internet of Things means to us is that more and more Wi-Fi and Bluetooth connected devices in our homes, more and more hackable devices that can be used and are and have been used. We talked in, in the last show about the unprecedented cyber attack of, of two weeks ago that affected Netflix, Twitter, and, and other major websites. Uh, it was an Internet of Things um, powered cyber attack. We're going to have to understand these things at a deeper level. We're going to need politicians who have an understanding of these things, and we need to be wary and careful of legislation that we, we pass on these things. But there's an important citizenship component to this. So, yes, hopefully listening to EdTechSR uh, helps, helps inform you as well as other podcasts and part of the service, which hopefully we are providing at, at a wonderfully free rate, by the way. We'll have to still talk about monetization, Jason, if we ever want to. There's like so many people. We, the EdTechSR is, is getting more downloads than Speed of Creativity uh, now. So, yay, we've reached that, reached that small, you know, minor milestone on a weekly basis. Um, we're filtering, right? All of us. It's not just an issue of access today. It's an issue of filtering and then also credibility and belief. How do you filter the information storm? And then how do you discern and decide what do I believe? What do I pay attention to? And then what warrants me taking action? You know, whether that's a consumer product that I'm either going to purchase or not, or it's something I'm going to choose to share or not, or it's a, it's a, a Kickstarter I'm going to fund or a, a, a political, you know, campaign that I'm going to try to get behind. I'm going to, I'm going to start sending some money to the EFF or supporting Tor or, you know, what, where are, are we going to see the information and, and ideas is like, well, that's great to know, but now that has an impact on how I live my life or what I choose to support politically in terms of wanting to, to collaborate with others and, and push change. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. Well, uh, this has been helpful to me. As I said, uh, part of my, my desire for this was to just kind of selfishly uh, pick Jason's brain a little bit and, and get some ideas. And so I'd, I'd love any feedback that, that you have about these topics. It's certainly something that we could take on um, in, in greater depth. But normally on the show, we're, we're kind of going through the latest tech news and, and then kind of going back and forth on our analysis of that and how that applies to education. So any feedback, you can... Uh, reach out to us uh, with our respective Twitter IDs, which we'll, we'll share here at the end of the show. And right. just and please uh, challenge us if we're wrong. Right. I mean, that, that yeah. I, I would think that, that of, of all the people on the earth that understand there are multiple perspectives, it's a couple of former ex college debater hacks, but you know, we, we may be wrong about these issues. Please challenge us and let us know um, where we're right and maybe where we're lacking. Absolutely. And um, also uh, feel free to, uh, you know, give us, give us input on where we should, where we should take these kinds of conversations. Cause I think we're at our school doing quite a bit now with digital citizenship and uh, we're having a mini retreat next week where we're going to be uh, developing the um, skeleton of this five year strategic plan for digital citizenship. Um, I'm wanting and thinking that some discussion about pri- well, certainly privacy, but even surveillance, you know, fits inside that. Um, Anyway, would, would value your feedback. So, Jason, what is your geek of the week to conclude our show tonight? 
Well, um, I ordered one the minute they were available, but Amazon, I'm sorry, Google this summer released the so-called Google Home, which is this device here. And unfortunately, it's plugged in right now, so I have kind of a limited range when I can show you. Basically, think of it as kind of a little Bluetooth speaker that also has Google Now built into it. I've owned it for 48 hours, and I think this may strike into the same awesomeness that the Amazon Alexa seems to be doing for those that bought that platform. But um, I can access it uh, very quickly by saying, okay, uh, then Google. I don't want to say it for now because I want to demonstrate that. But it is a, a great Bluetooth speaker. And um, I don't have very many Internet of Things devices in my home. But as I start to collect them, this thing will talk to them. So as an example of this, okay, Google, what is the weather in Missoula tomorrow? It'll be mostly sunny in Missoula tomorrow with a high of 58 and a low of 36. Okay, Google, set an alarm for 10 minutes from now. There, your alarm set for 9.20 p.m. Okay, Google, play classical cello music. All right, the Spotify playlist called Classical Cello. Here you go. Nice! Okay, Google, stop. And here's the big one, Wes. Are you ready? Okay, Google, play the EdTech Situation Room podcast. Here's the latest episode of EdTech Situation Room by a tech subject teaching it with Fryher. EdTech Situation Room episode 27. Happening now, we want to welcome our... <gasps> okay, Google, stop. Okay, I might be sold. Yeah, and the other piece of it is that's really interesting is that I'm finding out little things about it. But, uh, for example, okay, Google, good evening. Good evening, Jason. It is 9-11 p.m. The weather in Missoula currently is 43 degrees and clear with a high of 56 degrees. Have a wonderful day. Here's the latest news from NPR News Summary at 8 p.m. today. Wow. Wow. So does Planet Money and the following message come okay, from... Okay, Google, stop. <laughs> so, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty impressive. And, and actually, one of the big things I found out was that when I say, okay, then Google, I don't have to wait for it to recognize anything. And, in fact, I can just... In fact, it, it recognized that. Uh, I can just be with it. So, I mean, okay, Google, play Spotify, and it, it's good to go. So, it's pretty amazing. And as we've pointed out on the show, uh, the march of artificial intelligence, the collection of, of these companies for big data... Um, these these trends are going to have some big impacts on our lives, and there is potential for misuse and abuse with with hacks. But but there's also, I mean, this is this is why Google at their latest event was talking about you know AI and this 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 uh, assistant. This is the new world for them. This is the new search. I mean, as big as search has been for Google, they see AI and and this ability to have conversations and and to take it further and not just say what's the weather, you know, but but to have it understand at a deeper level, you know, what you're asking. And this is, it's, it's crazy how fast this stuff is developing. So I don't know, Jason, you may, you may have me sold. Well, my geek of the week is uh, something that has me thinking again about the Apple watch. I have not had a, 
uh, I've had a, basically a $15 watch uh, on my on my hand for a couple years since uh, a student did not return my watch that I had loaned them during a water bottle rocket launch a few years ago. And so anyway, I'm hopeful that I'm going to possibly be getting a new watch and, and have really been looking at analog. But this is a shout out to my sister up in Liberty, Missouri, who probably doesn't listen to the show, but emailed me this. And it is uh, the website is called Get. CMRA for Get Camera, but it's a camera CMRA for Apple Watch, and, and what it is is a band that has actually two different cameras on it, and I think that you only, it doesn't work with FaceTime, so I think your significant other would need to have this $150, you know, band on their Apple Watch, so we're, we're looking at a, a small segment of society, perhaps, that both spouses are, are Apple Watch users, but uh, it, it's this ability to do, to do the Dick Tracy, you know, uh, FaceTime video conference. That was what I was looking for in the recent Apple re- uh, update of the Apple Watch was to say, can I video conference on it yet? And... Uh, you can't, and therefore I was thinking, well, I'm not up for that. So I don't think this is going to push me over the edge, but an example of how quickly the technology is continuing to to go further and uh, something to consider checking out, I guess, especially if you if you live in a home or, or just have a really good buddy that wants to go in with you as well, and then you can FaceTime on your Apple Watches together and be even more geeky than Jason and I are on Wednesday nights. There you go. Well, Jason, where can people find you online? And also, I'll just say, what what's upcoming for you on your presentation schedule? Um, well, um, next Wednesday, I will not <laughs> be out on assignment again. Um, I will be um, uh, presenting, or I'll be running a, a, a table in the Helen Education Foundation Great Conversation Fundraiser, where I'll be talking about the Internet things with those that will be joining me to talk about that topic that night. And right now, I've got a couple of, of things I'm working on. But the next for sure is I will be a featured speaker and giving several presentations at the Northwest Council for Communication Conference in March 2017 in fabulous Portland, Oregon. So um, for me, I am, uh, my name is Jason Neifer. I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy. You can find my work online at MontanaDigitalAcademy.org. Uh, MTDA is a member of the Virtual School Leadership Alliance, which is doing great work with uh, a dozen other state virtual schools in the United States because virtual schools, get, virtual, state virtual schools get things done. Um, we are, I'm also the NCCE Tech Savvy Administrator in Residence, where I blog at blog.ncc.org. You can find me on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach. And Wes, what about you? And that was a great summary in the spirit of the best 1ARs that we've probably heard, to give you another debate reference. Ta-da. I used to be a 1A, so. There you go. I'll have to share a story about that later. Um, so I am Wes Fryer. I am the Director of Technology at the Cassidy School here in Northwest Oklahoma City. You can find me on Twitter at WFryer. And if you look in my Twitter profile, you'll find a few other places where I do share content. My blog, speedofcreativity.org, has uh, periodic posts. I have definitely podcasted there far less than I have in previous years. I've been podcasting since 2005 and blogging since 2003. So there's quite a few posts up there. Um, I will be presenting on Saturday as actually kind of an opening featured speaker at a Kansas South, I think Southeast Kansas, South Central Kansas Google Summit in Mays, Kansas, which is just near Wichita that I'm looking forward to. And I'll be presenting a couple sessions on uh, using video in the Google ecosystem with YouTube and also doing some cool things with forms and maps. 
And then at the end of the month, the University of Oklahoma has a K-20 center that has a nice annual conference called the Interactive Learning Institute, ILI, and that's at the Embassy Suites in Norman, Oklahoma. And so I will be there on November 30th sharing two sessions, one about managing Wi-Fi, iPads, and Chromebooks, um, hopefully with my assistant director of technology, Lauren Swinson, and that's going to be fun. That'll be our first chance to co-present about some of the geeky tech director stuff that we that we get to do. And then I will also be sharing a session on great iPad activities, which I shared at the iPad Palooza OU conference that took place in August this year. And you can find that at ipadmediacamp.com slash matrix. So we want to thank you for tuning in. We have gone a little bit past our normal one hour, but again, the beauty of the podcast is nobody told us to, you know, shut it down. So we generally are about an hour show on Wednesday nights. Uh, we'll have to see next week if we are, uh, Jason's out on assignment. I will be seeing about a guest. We had a couple couple folks ask for rain checks when Jason was out last time. So stay tuned to our Twitter channel, EdTechSR. Definitely go to EdTechSR.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, leave us a comment on the top of our show notes. will be a link to a listener survey where you can provide feedback. And we know there are more people out there listening than our one fan in Tasmania, Australia, and uh, Peggy George down in Phoenix, uh, Arizona, and uh, Diane Woodard out in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. So we'd love to hear from you, find out uh, not only where you are, but anything that you would particularly like to hear us talk about or that's resonated with you. And we thank you for listening. So my, uh, what, I I should have come up with this bumper in in advance, but uh, be aware, stay safe, make good choices out there.